0: we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 2. We're continuing on toward the end. We, are, we have finished, technically, uh, Peter's sermon, and now we're getting into the verses that follow. And as we read the Word of God, all I will say beforehand is that the Word of God is amazing and powerful. The Word spoken, communicated, To the ears and the minds of men and women who have been touched by the Holy Spirit is amazingly powerful and can do extraordinary things. So let's stand and let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brethren what shall we do peter said to them repent and each of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as our god will call to himself and with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying be saved from this perverse generation so then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3000 souls they were continually devoting themselves to th- they were continually de- well i guess i'm reading past where we said but they were continually devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer the word of the lord be to God. amen raise your hands with me and we'll pray Lord, Heavenly Father, you have been so kind and merciful and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All of these things you have offered to those who are at their very wits' end, to those who must ask, what shall we do because of what we have done? Father, it's in the the darkness of despair when your truth and the hope that it brings and the light that it sheds on our life shines the brightest. It is when we have reached the end of ourselves that the pathway lies open to you. We thank you for your gifts, the gifts that we've just read about, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, and I pray that both of these free gifts would be given to each one of us. And I don't just pray that for us who are here in this room, but I also pray it on behalf of our nation and our land. Father, forgive our sins and have mercy upon us. Don't give us what we deserve, but I pray that our nation would be saved. We pray for our nation because we're citizens of it. Pray that we would also pray for our nation because we love our neighbors. I pray that as we've read about in our passage this morning, that the great crowds would come to seek after Jesus Christ by every means available, that their ears might be reached and that their hearts might be touched and changed. Father, I do pray that you'd be with all your pastors who preach your word this morning and give to us the power of your Holy Spirit and cause us to deliver to the church strength and joy and peace and gladness in the name of Jesus Christ, who is all these things to us. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning, I want to speak to you about what it means to be a Christian. A few years ago, I was with my wife. We were visiting my wife's aunt, who lives in Point Place. And while we were there, she made an announcement. I distinctly remember, we were standing in her driveway outside her house, and she declared that she was going to become a jeeper. You know what a jeeper is? Maybe you will in a minute. A jeeper is the sort of person who belongs to a society where jeeps are the ties that bind. She was planning on making this life change by ordering herself a brand new jeep. She laid it all out for us. First, she was getting that car. It was going to arrive sometime in the near future. After she got the car, she was going to start participating in Jeeper events. She was going to start collecting those rubber ducky things that go in the front window. She was going to uh, do certain drives where all Jeeps drive here, there, and everywhere. She even told me about opportunities for community service that those that own Jeeps, Participate in. This is what a Jeeper is, and this is what a Jeeper does. So I left that day realizing that what a Jeeper was, did a little bit more clearly and kind of being struck at the whole nature of it. I mean, it was, an incredible, it was a conversation that stuck with me. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? How does somebody become a Christian? This is a vital question, much more important than considering what a jeeper does. But for as important as it is, it's a question to which there are many answers out there. There are many answers that are available. There's a lot of different opinions as to what being a Christian means. <clears throat> Today, over 50% of Americans, I think, still claim to be Christians. But if you were to ask a a random selection of those 50%, what it means that they claim to be a Christian, you would get all sorts of different types of answers. What makes somebody a Christian? Is it attending church? <clears throat> Is it growing up in a Christian family where you're taught what the Bible says? Is it receiving the sacraments? Is it doing the sign of the cross before you pray? Is it being a good person, making the right decision, doing the right thing, some version of that? Is it believing in Jesus? Well, it is, but if you've ever talked with somebody about that, you actually have to, you realize very quickly that even believing in Jesus is a very wide chasm. There's a lot of different variation as to what believing in Jesus actually means so to answer our question this morning what makes someone a Christian we must look to what the Bible says and in our passage Peter gives us a very clear simple outlined answer to this question so I want to speak to you about uh, about this topic because there's doubtless those here that are not Christians But I also want to speak to you about what makes somebody a Christian because all of us who are Christians may never forget what lies as the foundation of our Christian life, what serves as the foundation of our Christian life. We never graduate from the school of foundational truths about our faith. All throughout the Bible, God tells you and me, remember what I've done for you. Think on these things. So whether you are a Christian this morning or whether you are not, there is a question that needs to be considered in your mind, and it is, what is it that makes somebody a Christian? What is it that makes me a Christian? How might I become a Christian? Our passage begins by saying, now when the crowd heard this, they were pierced to their heart. All that is to come, the crowd's inquiry about how they might be saved, and the result being that 3,000 believed and were brought into the church in one day, all of that is predicated on this detail right here. The crowd heard, the crowd heard, now when the crowd heard this, what did they heard? What is it that the crowd had heard? Peter has just finished preaching a sermon to a very large group, mixed audience, made up of skeptics and the curious. And what has he spoken about? Well, he's talked about Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus, the Messiah that was to come, the Savior who came to the earth. He started there. And he talked about how Jesus the Nazarene was delivered over to be crucified by godless men. So he he talks about the end of Jesus the Nazarene's life. But he makes the bold point to the crowd that this was no just mere tragedy that he had no control over, but that his death, his being handed over to death and being crucified was the result of the predetermined will and plan Of Almighty God this probably causes them to start second-guessing their decision to start thinking oh no what have we done this was the predetermined plan of God and then where does he go well from there he begins to declare to him that though they crucified the Christ he's risen from the dead he's no longer dead because it was impossible for death to reign over God Jesus Christ would not be subjected to death's power. And so he's not dead anymore. He's risen. And he's not just risen from the dead, but he's risen to a specific place. And where was that place? The place was to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, a place of authority, a place of power. This is the message that Peter preaches. And he ends with this statement Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus Christ both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Who killed Jesus? Godless men. Who killed Jesus? You did. It was your sins. For which he went to the cross and where is he now he's ruling according to his own plan on the throne of the universe that's what peter has just preached to them this is the message that the crowd has heard faith comes through hearing we're all attracted to hearing certain things at the stupid banal end um, there are things we like hearing like favorite songs on the radio or favorite comedians, talk show hosts. On the more serious end of things, we desire and we cherish hearing about the love that our spouse has for us. We cherish hearing our children's love for us. There are, there's a whole range of spectrum to the things that we love hearing, from silly and just pure fun to significant and meaningful. Last words that somebody spoke to us, last admonitions. And they're all different in all of our lives, but there are things that we have cherished hearing, that we hold in our hearts and value, that we remember, that we ponder, that we allow to influence us. Do we cherish the message that we have heard in the gospel? in the word of God? Is that something that you cherish? Is it something that you turn over and reflect on? Like somebody might turn over, you know, Frodo with the ring. He loves it. He cherishes it. He ponders it. Do you cherish what you have heard in the word of God? Is your your ear attuned to the sound of God's word throughout your life? like it might be a tune for a silly song on the radio. The message of the gospel should be heard every day because it greets us, it affects us, it ministers to us every day. It should never be an old truth because it is an eternal truth that carries you and me through our lives. Do you hear the words of Scripture with ears to hear? Is it alive to you? Or are your ears dull? Does it sound like a low, staticky noise in the background? Or is it vibrant? Does it cause your heart to be touched and your emotions to be changed? Not just because you're emotional, but because it's speaking to your heart. It's confronting your heart with its truth. On the flip side of hearing, I just want to mention this, do you speak the message of Jesus to others? The good news, the truth of Christ, what Peter has just preached to these people, is a message to be shared. It is something to be communicated through speech. We're told, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so we must notice that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is sitting on his throne on this day when Peter preaches. It's not his voice that's audible, it's Peter's. Underscored here is the necessity of those that bring the good news. Do you speak the good news for others to hear? What message do you carry? So the first thing that we are to notice is that faith comes through hearing. It's something they heard. They heard something. Faith comes through hearing. The second thing is I'm going to finish that verse. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And what we need to recognize is that it's not our power or our ability to influence or our great rhetoric or our intellectual prowess that others respond to. What these people heard was not some sort of philosophical argument. It's all laid out there. You can read what Peter said. He kept exhorting them. What's it say in verse 40 40? He kept on exhorting them and testifying, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That was his message, that was his call. So this was not philosophical argument that Peter was using. He wasn't trying to douse them with apologetics. He was simply stating the truth about Christ and seeking to warn them about the state that they were in. And the result, the fruit of that was that 3,000 men and women had a change of heart. Their hearts were pricked. And again, I'd ask you to think about that fact, that 3,000 of these men and women had a change of heart. It's an incredible, miraculous thing. It's something that could not be achieved with just merely worldly influence or power. 3,000 individuals, and not just individuals, But these are the same men and women that just weeks before had been shouting to crucify the Messiah. You think about it, and you have to ask, is what Peter said that convincing? No. It wasn't that convincing. Any rational person knowing the details of what had taken place would predict that this great crowd would hear what Peter was saying to them And they would respond either with indignance or worse, be enraged at his message because his message is a warning. It's also an indictment. He's saying that Jesus was crucified by godless men and then he ends by saying, this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you not think that that struck and cut against their pride? Jews, godless men, really? You would think that these people would be enraged and that they'd come after him. They laughed and mocked Jesus all the way to the cross and then even on the cross. And yet, that's not the response that they have to Peter. They don't respond in mockery. They don't respond in rage. What is it that moves these people's hearts? What is it that caused them to respond by hearing and being convicted Pierced in their hearts. That's what this text says. Well, it was the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to say that you cannot merely take up Christianity. You can take up becoming a Jeeper. You can order yourself one and you can get those rubber ducks and set them in the window. You can take up many movements. You can even take up coming to church. But you cannot merely take up Christianity. Because by definition, what we see here, in this picture of what's happening, as the Holy Spirit is working to change the hearts of these people, is that Christianity is something that by definition takes you up. It is not primarily something that you do, but primarily foundationally something that is done to you the Holy Spirit must give you ears to hear you cannot explain it you cannot dissect or analyze always his work but he must give you ears to hear he must remove what is stopping you from hearing the truth and discerning it that's something that only he can do this is the power of the Holy Spirit and This incomprehensible work of God is seen so clearly in our passage. The conversion of 3,000 people was entirely because the Holy Spirit had come down and was working in them with power, using the words of a simple fisherman. Remember, Peter's a fisherman. He's using the words of that simple fisherman, and he's driving those words into their minds and their hearts and their consciences in a way that hadn't happened before and they couldn't make happen of their own will. It wasn't the greatness of Peter's words. It wasn't the people's native or natural desire to just embrace Christ. That wasn't their heart condition. This was a supernatural change of heart accomplished by the Holy Spirit. So I want to encourage you. Earlier I encouraged you to speak. I I want to encourage you again to speak because you need to remember that it isn't your greatness that is at work. It isn't your intellectual capability to go toe to toe in an argument that's at work. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to take your words and to make them effective, to fill them so that they have some sort of effect, so that they nourish and and change The person that hears them it's the Holy Spirit's power and he offers it to you he says in fact Jesus sent his spirit for this work so are you are you speaking are you speaking here we start to understand what it means to be a Christian a Christian is someone whose ears are open to hearing the truth of God if you aren't a Christian this morning it is my prayer that God would open your ears to hear And that he would open your eyes to see what you don't naturally see. We start hearing his truth and believing it. And of course, that's the very start. But it never changes. All throughout life, it should be our chief desire to hear from God. The people heard what Peter told them, and the Spirit of God softened their hearts to recognize that what he said was true. We are very blessed very privileged to have the word of God ourselves. We have all 66 books of the Bible and we can read it every day without any impediment. Do you read the Bible as one who desires and expects to hear from God? Does the message what the Bible teaches, is is that something rather that you cherish? Is it something that you long for? Is this a reality in your life? As you take in his word, do you see it not just as factual truth, but do you experience it, that truth, as being applied to your life by the power of the Holy Spirit? What I'm saying is, is when, you, when you read the word of God, do you go beyond just acknowledging, yes, this is all true? Do you go push past that point to the recognition of, this is true for me, and here's how? Is that something that you experience? Do you hear the word of God like that? There are many people who hear the word of God and how it should apply to others' lives. But do you hear the word of God as it's applied to your life? But is being a Christian only hearing? No, it's more than that. The crowd heard Peter's words, their hearts were pierced, they felt conviction, and... They responded. The message of Christ, the truth of Christ, demands a response. When it is heard, you can reject it or you can embrace it, but you must respond. There is no such thing as a disinterested third party. Rejection or embrace are the only options to the message of the good news of Christ. Apathy is rejection of the most condescending nature. Apathy to the Word of God is the absolute worst response you could ever have. I would rather have somebody be adamantly against the Word of God than someone who doesn't care. And we see in our passage that the crowd does respond. They respond by asking a very logical, rational question. They (laughs) come to Peter and they say, what shall we do? You think about it. If your kid screwed up something big, There's all sorts of responses that they could give you. But this is one of the most beautiful ones, isn't it? I mean, they could respond, I just think back on parenting, you know? We often interpret these things through experience and a lot of my life experience has to do with parenting. You know, your kid messes up something and they can either like blame their sibling or they can lie or they can give you some answer for why you don't understand and this and that and the other thing. But the, the best response when confronted is just, what shall we do now? Not denial. Like, okay, it's happened. It's admitting that what Peter said was true. Okay, where do we go from here? It's beautiful. It's a beautiful response. What shall we do? Peter says to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So being a Christian starts with the work of the Holy Spirit enabling you to hear the message of Christ with ears that are able and willing to hear it and who pricks your heart to consider things that you haven't ever considered before, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus' whole ministry is calling the lost to come to him. There must be a response to what we hear. Peter tells them to do two things. First he says, repent. So to be a Christian, you must repent of your sins. This is the message that Jesus proclaimed his entire earthly life. You recognize this is the very first message of Jesus ever. After Paul, after John the Baptist had been imprisoned, we are told that from that time onward, Jesus began to preach and to say to the people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was significantly the first message that Jesus spoke And that was the message that he kept driving home all throughout his ministry. Yes, repentance is not at an impasse with love and tenderness and compassion. He spoke of compassion and love, but all throughout they they go together. It was a message of repentance. A call to repentance cannot be separated from the gospel, from the good news. In other words, there can be no remission without repentance. And we have a lot of people in our church who have cancer right now. and We're praying for remission in their bodies, for healing, complete healing. So we understand a little bit of what that means. There can be no remission without repentance. There can be no healing. There can be no life without repentance. Notice that Peter starts by saying repent. And interestingly, we need to acknowledge and recognize that we would start where? Where would we start? We would start by saying believe. Both are biblical words. And yet the call to repentance is so infrequently heard today. Today everything is about believing. But what does that mean? What does it mean to believe? The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. But if you believe Jesus, shouldn't you believe what he said? Is that not what believing in Jesus looks like? Like obeying what he has said? And so repentance is the response of those who really believe in Jesus. But wait, here's a striking thing we already read that the people were pierced to their heart. Why does Peter respond by saying, Repent to people who are already pierced to the heart? That doesn't make any sense, that seems redundant seems kind of cold-hearted, seems obtuse, like he doesn't recognize, he doesn't read his congregation very well. Why would he say repent if they already felt bad? What we learn is that repentance is more than the feeling of guilt. Conviction is a good thing, but not all people, in fact few people, walk conviction all the way to the doorway of repentance. There are many who feel conviction. There are many who feel guilt and shame. In fact, there are many who would acknowledge this to you and say, I hate this part of my life or I I just can't stand it, I'm in turmoil. But they never actually reach the point of repentance because repentance takes place when you recognize that the things that cause you guilt and shame and, and sorrow are actually things that you've done against God, not just against yourself. Do you recognize that? Many people hate some of the vices and the things that they do. But they don't recognize it as something actually against God. They recognize it as something that they do to themselves and it screws them up. And therefore, they actually never cross the threshold of repentance because they may be ashamed of it, but they never end up recognizing that they must turn from it. Repentance is more than the feeling of guilt. So if repentance is different than conviction and guilt and shame, what does it mean to repent? Well, it means seeing our sin. Peter preached to the people. He said, godless men put him to death. And oh, by the way, Jesus, you crucified him. So they see their sin and they confess it. They sorrow over it. These are all parts of seeing sin, sorrowing over your sin, like feeling bad about it confessing it they don't deny it we already said that they say what are we going to do they're, they're agreeing with Peter okay we did this what do we do now and then they turn from it that's what Peter calls them to do they're not going to live in it anymore repentance is all these things seeing it feeling bad over it hating it confessing it but turning from it turning you know, I was just talking with, um, I was just talking with John this past week, who did hammer throw in high school. The only other person I know who's ever done the hammer throw is Mrs. Trunchable and Matilda. And what an image that brings to mind. But I was talking with John, and he was telling me that you know you have this 16 pound hammer or ball on a string, whatever, and uh, you know, it's 16 pounds, and I think he said he threw it 160 or 80 feet, something in in that window, but that the really big guys can throw it like 260 or 280 feet, and he was kind of demonstrating for us what it looked like, and if I was to try and throw a 16-pound ball, 10 feet, 20 feet, 150 feet, I I don't know, I think I would imagine me throwing something the size of a watermelon, but like kind of like a baseball. You know, that's the way I think. I was trying to throw my whole body in it. He's saying no, it actually has very little to do with like your actual throwing. It has everything to do with turning. You know, the the way you turn. And so he was modeling this for us. Everything has to do with the turning. Okay, that came to my mind because I'm just talking about the fact that repentance starts with yeah, seeing your sin, feeling bad over it, confessing it, but it actually has everything to do with the finish it's like you don't ever get to repentance if you don't finish well right and the finish is the i don't know how i should have you model this john but you know the something like that he's laughing at me it has everything to do with the turning you must repent the bible the bible says repent for the kingdom of god is at hand it will be here soon And those who don't hear and heed God's call will eternally lament that they did not take him seriously while there was still time. Do you take the Bible seriously when it says to repent or do you think that belief in God, in Jesus, belief that the Bible is a good book, belief that church is good for the soul and kind of helps you get your life right, do you believe that all those things without repentance is good enough to allow you to inherit eternal life? If you do not repent, Peter says, there is no hope for salvation. It is those who repent that Jesus, that Peter says, obtain forgiveness of sins. Jesus teaches that we cannot love and serve money and God at the same time. Jesus teaches that that's an impossibility. And I'm trying to highlight here the fact that this truth, that you you cannot be saved without repenting, is just, just shot through, straight through the entire Bible. Jesus says you can't love God and money. And there's a time in Jesus' ministry where we're told a rich young ruler comes to him and says, he kneels down before him, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, this guy is a a Jew, an upstanding Jew. He's concerned about his eternal destiny. He comes to Jesus and asks a question, all sort of good-looking things. We can kind of get a sense for what his life looks like, and in a sense... This man is really asking the same question that we are today. What is, what is it to be a Christian? Like, how do I inherit eternal life? How am I, what does it mean to be good, what does it look like to be good with God? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he says to Jesus, yeah, I, I know all those things and I've done them since I was young. And what is clear is that though this man has a desire to inherit eternal life and he goes to church and he listens to the right radio stations and this and that and the other thing, what's clear is that he doesn't have a need for Jesus. He says, yeah, all those things I've, I've done my entire life. He doesn't have a need. He hears Jesus' words, but he doesn't understand how that truth connects to him personally. He fails. He, he doesn't have ears to hear we're told that Jesus, looking at him, said back to him, one thing you still lack, okay, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you're going to have treasure in heaven. Do this, you'll go to heaven. You'll inherit eternal life. When Jesus said this to him, the man was sad because he had much wealth. This was a very religious Man. He was obviously concerned about the life to come. He went to Jesus for advice, but he loved money. And he had a lot of it to love. And so he would not repent. And that love of money kept him from inheriting eternal life. There are those who have attended church their entire life, but have not been forgiven because they're like the rich young ruler and they love their money. There are those who attend church their entire life but have not been forgiven because they for refuse, to look at, refuse to stop looking at pornography. It was just a reading in Matthew, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you, it's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and go to hell. And we read these things and we don't really give them the weight they deserve. It's like, okay, yes, that's nice, a, a poetic truth right there. And yet, What Jesus is saying, Matthew 18, what he's saying in his Sermon on the Mount is the same thing that Peter is saying here. It's you must repent of your sins or they will keep you from heaven. They will keep you from being a Christian. You must repent of your sins. So I urge you this morning to evaluate your heart. Weigh your motives and your desires. Make sure that you are not the clean, godly, upstanding, rich, young ruler who has so much right And yet fails to repent where it matters and is therefore kept from being with Jesus. Again and again, the Bible calls us to repentance, and it it isn't that we need to repent because God only takes those who are completely pure and good and righteous in and of themselves. No. It's the self righteous that never see any need for Jesus at all. The Bible calls us to repentance because, in calling us to repentance, we are being called to turn to Christ. We are being called to turn to Christ. Salvation is, is not obtained without repentance. And remember, the words of Luther, his 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 recogni- his realization, rather, as a as a a young man uh, serving in the Catholic Church, which led to the huge life change. It was the first of his you know theses that he nailed to the door. Um, in Germany, he said, he realized when the Lord said repent, he meant that all of life was to be one of repentance. This was a radical um, truth for him, and it is a radical truth for us because it's the truth of what Scripture says. Calvin says that Peter teaches us this, that we are to repent, so that those who are of the world, unbelievers, may begin to crucify the old man, that they might rise a new, to new life, salvation. And so he's addressed those that are not saved. Now, then he says he addresses those that are, are saved. And that those that have already entered the course of repentance, Christians, may continually go forward towards the mark. So repentance is not just something that happens once, it is the course. It's like a never-ending, except it ends in glory actually, but it's like the longest golf course of your life, right? And all through the course, repentance, 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 the holes. And I want to say that repentance is a wonderful thing. You know, we might be tempted to think, oh, repentance, 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 but it's a wonderful thing. It's not just something that ends the bad, but it is something that, that begins something glorious and productive and good. It is the turning that I spoke of earlier. It's not just the breaking of the shackle. It is the living in the freedom that the broken shackle allows. So repentance is not just some heavy-handed negative thing. It is a wonderful thing. It's the thing that Jesus died to give you. Have you repented? Do you live a life of repentance? And so, being a Christian entails hearing the truth and responding in repentance. But is that it? Well, no, we must, if repentance is turning, then finally we must consider what we need to be turning toward. Because Jesus says you can't just clear out the whole house, you've got to put the right stuff in it. So Peter gives us and these people that he's addressing the admonition to repent but to turn and he also tells us what to turn toward. That's what we're going to to finish with this morning. The second thing that Peter instructs the crowd to do is to be baptized, okay, okay. We've already discussed the idea that repentance isn't just a a bad feeling, but it's turning, so what do we turn to? Okay. We turn to Jesus, but what does that mean? Turning to Jesus can be a very hazy statement. Some of the most frustrating conversations I've ever had with anyone in my entire life goes something like this. We just need to follow Jesus more. Like, what do you mean by that? Yes, I agree at face value. That's true. But what in the world does that mean? Well, we, we do know something about what that means. What does turning to Jesus look like when he's not physically here? Well, Peter says repent of your sins and okay, then he says this, be baptized. Peter is not saying that baptism, the act in and of itself is salvific. He isn't saying that it's a requirement to be baptized in order to go to heaven. There are those that teach that but that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible clearly says that all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ should be baptized and yet we know That the thief on the cross was a very prominent example of somebody who was not baptized. And yet Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. The reason that Jesus and Peter talk about repentance and baptism together is that repentance is turning and baptism represents what we are to turn toward. It is a sign of belonging with Jesus Christ. Peter isn't just speaking about receiving baptism alone. He's speaking about receiving baptism, of of receiving baptism and living as a baptized man or woman. That's what we have to understand here. I wanted to say, to help us recognize what Peter's saying here, maybe a little more clearly: baptism is is, is not like a trip to Cedar Point. It is like it is like a wedding. Two different experiences trip to Cedar Point, and a wedding. Baptism is not like Cedar Point, it is like a wedding. What I mean by this is that you can go to Cedar Point, and you go there for the day, and you experience it all, you take it all in, hopefully you get on all the roller coasters, and then at the end of the day and forever on after that point, you have the ability of, of telling others that I have been to Cedar Point. It's true, you did. And the experience might live on in your mind until you go again. But after you leave there, it doesn't really affect you, right? You can tell people you went there, but it really doesn't have much bearing on your life. You experienced something a year and a half ago, and I hope I experience it again someday. That's Cedar Point. A wedding is also an experience. And for all those of you who have been married, you might be able to think back to your wedding in a very similar way that you might be able to think back and recall your trip to Cedar Point. But experiencing an amusement park and, an ex- and experiencing your wedding are two completely different things. And if you're married, you understand how this is the case clearly. And if you're, even if you're not married, I trust that you can take my word for it. When you leave Cedar Point, you've had an experience. When you leave your wedding... You've left another experience, the ceremony, but something that has forever changed you. The rest of your life is affected by what happened in that wedding. The wedding ceremony brought you into a marriage. Baptism brings you into the church. The act of baptism happens once, but the effect of being baptized lives with you forever. Just like a wedding brings you into a new lifelong status with implications and expectations and and blessings, so it is with baptism. Just think about how baptism would have affected these Jews. Baptism was turning to Christ, but it was also very clearly turning away from Judaism. If you read the book of Galatians, you get a sense for all the, the infighting and the tension around those that were becoming Christians, There were sacrifices that needed to be made. Probably some family was ostracized from you if you became a Christian, right? They shunned you. I, I just met a I met a, a a Jewish man recently. He was telling he, he's not a Christian, but he was telling me that there is such still in Israel. At least when he was he's in his nearly eighty now, and he uh, came to New York to study as a doctor, and he had every intention to move back to Israel when he was done. But he was saying that there is still such a radical push against ever leaving Judaism, leaving Israel, that his family really was never willing to embrace him again, and he never went back. He never, he never went back, even though he said he spent a few years trying to go back, but it never worked out. Now, I'm not saying that that is, you know, everyone's experience, but what I'm saying is, is that gives you some sense for how radical becoming a Christian would have been in Jewish society in this day, how much it would have affected. You're leaving behind The feasts and the festivals and the religious rites—you're leaving behind, uh, or or maybe I should say, pushing past uh, the Jewish belief alone to actually the embrace of a Messiah, Jesus, the one who was to come. This would have had radical implications for their their lives, both good and and hard. So in your life, baptism isn't simply having water applied to you; it is living as one who has been buried and raised up with Christ. Just like the life of a husband begins with love and vows and continues on with love and commitment to those vows to his wife, the life of the Christian begins with repentance and baptism and it continues on with repentance and the same commitments that it started with. It's not just an experience that happened way back in the day. It affects every day of your life. It should. So, a Christian is someone who hears God's word, not just once, but cherishes the hearing of it and hears it every day and responds to it by repenting again, not just one and done, but a life of repentance and the glorious and joyful repentance, happy repentance, and who turns and lives the life of being buried with Christ and raised to new life with Him. That's what it means to be a Christian. So, I ask, are you a Christian? I do not ask if you come to church or if you believe in God. I do not ask if you have Christian friends or if you're conservative. Are you a Christian? Do you live a life of hearing God's word and committing your whole self to it? Become a Christian. Become a Christian. Live as a Christian. Have the forgiveness and the Holy Spirit that, Jesus, that Peter promises to the crowd. There is no better life. It's yours, the free gift, forgiveness of your sins, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, if you repent and you live baptized. Let's pray.